Well, good morning. And I wish a happy Father's Day to all the men in the congregation this morning. My name is Shandy Geisler. Uh, along with my wife, I've been attending West West Chapel of my own volition for the last 10 years. Both my wife and I grew up in the church, and we took a brief hiatus while we were at school and first married and came back for more. And a lot has changed in 10 years. Back then, we had no children. We were meeting in the old church, which is now Sunday school rooms and offices. Now uh, we have four children, and here we sit. So God has been good over those 10 years. My apologies to those of you who've been here the last few weeks, but the um, disclaimer that the reason I'm up here is because our pastor, Joe Franzone, is on sabbatical for the summer. And so men from the congregation, along with missionaries that we support, will be filling the pulpit in his absence. And uh, he'll return in the fall, I think, September 6th, which is a date I know I'm looking forward to. Um, I miss him, and uh, I have a greater appreciation for what he does each week in the uh, process of preparing for this morning. Psalm 106 is where we'll find ourselves this morning, and we're dedicated this summer to studying the Psalms. And in a moment, I'll read from uh, Psalm 107, verses 1 through 21. If you don't have a Bible in front of you or with you, there's one in the seat underneath uh, in front of you, and you can turn to page 432. I'll give you a moment to um, find that, and then we'll read together Psalm 107, verses 1 through 21. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good, his love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from the east and west, from north and south. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor They stumbled, and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Would you please bow with me as we pray and seek the help we need this morning? God and Father, we humbly come before you now in great need of your help. 
We confess that many times we give less than our best in our worship of you. We are often distracted by the things of this world and give the better part of our time, energy, and devotion to these things rather than to you. And now as we open your word, we ask that you would illuminate our minds so that we may understand, soften our hearts so that we may accept, and strengthen our resolve that we may live in light of the truth. Please help us in our weakness and mold us more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. I'd like to give you just a brief background on Psalm 107 and the psalm in general. Uh, Not a whole lot, but just a little background concerning this book. Um, Psalms is a compilation of prayers and praises that were written by various authors over the span of about a thousand years. Uh, By various authors, uh, David gets a a lot of credit, although he didn't write all of them. Uh, Pat preached from Psalm 90 last week, which is the oldest psalm written by Moses. The final compilation of the psalm was put together around 300 B.C. for use in the synagogue as a book of prayer and praise. The first thing uh, you'll notice about Psalm 107 is that it starts book 5 of the psalms. And this division into five books was done to mirror the books of Moses or the books of the law. In Psalm 107, along with a number of other psalms in Books 3 through 5 is a so-called orphan song because its authorship is unknown. It's thought, based on similarity in language and writing style, that it may have been a trilogy along with Psalm 105 and 106. Um, As far as when it was written, the themes in the psalm, such as conducting commerce at sea, which we didn't read this verse, but later in the psalm, verse 23, and a reference to those he gathered from the lands, Uh, suggests that it probably was written during the post-Babylonian exile period, about approximately 500 B.C., and it was written as a liturgical psalm, which means it was intended to be sung or recited during public worship at one of Israel's religious festivals. So we'll take a look at uh, verses 1 through 3 as the introductory call to worship and examine that along with the crises that are described there. You can see on the back of your worship folder there's a few points, and then uh, God's response and final application. So verses 1 through 3 are the introductory call to worship. Uh, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Now, I'm not going to pretend like I understand Hebrew, because I don't. In fact, prior to preparing for this morning, I knew some Hebrew words, and uh, to be honest, I probably confused their meaning somewhat, but I I did study and I I learned something about the origin of a few words in these first few verses that I found helpful, so hopefully um, you will too. So the first word is good, so give thanks to the Lord for he is good, and I couldn't help but reflect on my own use of the word good, and my apologies to Pat and Erica and anybody else who has a, a better mastery of the English language than I do for the way in which I use this word, but um, I thought about how I use this word in my own language, and uh, I found that I often use it in reference to something that's slightly above average or of acceptable quality. Um, I use good enough to refer to something that's barely adequate and of just barely gets by. And so I've kind of perverted good in the sense that uh, it doesn't 
have a very high meaning or um, lofty meaning in, in the way I use it. The other day, my wife modified a pair of jeans. She bought them, they were too long, so she hemmed them and shortened them, and you know, I was asked the inevitable question, how do they look? So, of course, my response was a pause, and then, good, they, they look good. Of course, we all know what that meant. Um, did they look like they came from the store? Absolutely not. But to the casual observer, you would not have noticed that they were, you know, done at home or mended at home. So the point is, good, at least in my vocabulary, has been relegated. And it may, you know, for those, anybody listen to Garage Logic? <laughs> a few of you? Okay. So it would be a, a word worthy of the foghorn. The treatment given to words that are so grossly overused and misused that they've lost all meaning. And so for me, good is one of those words. It's like a filler. However, in these verses, good is not used in that way. Good is not relegated uh, in any way, shape, or form. This, it's not subjective. It doesn't vary by degrees. It's actually, um, the Hebrew word for good is tov, spelled T-O-W-B, and it means excellent and morally perfect. Now, recorded in the Gospels is an exchange between a man and Jesus that illustrate this, what this word good means. I'm going to read the account from Mark, starting in chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So this exchange illustrates pretty obviously that the title of good cannot belong to any man. And good in the sense that it's mentioned in the psalm is an inherent quality of God, both in terms of his nature and deeds. And so when the psalmist says, Good thanks to the Lord for he is good, it's a call to praise God for he's perfect and excellent in everything that he is and everything that he does. So we could say, Give thanks to the Lord for he is pure. Give thanks to the Lord for he's excellent. Give thanks to the Lord for he is perfect. The second word that I um, studied uh, is the word love. Now, the New King James Version of these words translates them as follows. Verse 1, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. So, love and mercy are both translations of the same Hebrew word, hesed. C-H-E-S-E-D. Apparently, you're supposed to pronounce it hesed. And uh, it would be a lot easier if I had a thick glass of eggnog and still had that coating on the back of my throat. Now, I'm going to refer to it as hesed from here on out in case uh, I botch the pronunciation and make some guttural noise. Um, anyway, in, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, they used the Greek word elios in place of hesed, which meant mercy, pity, compassion, uh, clemency. And so hesed can also be thought of as covenant love, which would be the Old Testament equivalent of agape love found in the New Testament, and it's a word used primarily in reference to God and not man, and it speaks, speaks specifically of the God, love of God towards mankind, a love that's uh, self-sacrificing and perfectly faithful to the covenant promises. So moving on to verse 2, 
we have an obvious question is who is to give thanks? And we have the redeemed or the redeemed of the Lord, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe and those he gathered from the lands. So given the time in which the psalm was written, those he gathered from the land is most likely in reference to uh, the Israelites who had been brought out of captivity and exile. Nehemiah in his prayer before he went before King Artaxerxes to ask if he could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, um, prayed the following prayer. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, interpretations of the situation, so through verses 4 through 30, which we didn't read to, there are various uh, situations and difficulties, and the interpretations of those vary considerably. I wasn't able to find uh, any two commentators who complete or agreed 100%, um, but the general consensus is that the redeemed or those who redeemed is a general reference to all mankind to give praise to God for his mercy in delivering them from various difficulties and troubles. So in spite of what we don't know about the psalm, authorship, um, maybe a few finer points here and there, there's much that we can learn, we can be reminded of and apply. So we'll take a few minutes, our, our second point we'll get to in a moment, is to examine verses 4 through 21, the, the crises that are described there, and try to understand them. However, the greatest emphasis in the psalm is not the crises themselves. So in some regard, that is not of most importance. What's most important is God's response to people in crises, and then our response to God in light of his response. So we'll explore each circumstance as symbolic of the various troubles, circumstances, difficulties that mankind can find themselves in regardless of time and space and view them as conditions that most assuredly are helpless but for the mercy of God. So our second point, the crises. We have the wanderers and we have the prisoners, the rebels and fools. So first, the wanderers. Some wandered, this is verse 4 through 5, some wandered in the desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Now, as a child, I had a, a propensity to wander, wander off. And on one vacation in particular, I, I could count at least three times that I was lost. Now, lost is a bit relative in that there were times when I was lost in the sense that I didn't know where I was and my parents didn't know where I was. And that was at, I think, the JFK Space Center. Spent some time wandering around the parking lot, um, made it to our car. Um, but it was, I was frightened, but evidently not frightened enough because I proceeded to wander off at a few other places. Uh, the second that I remember was the alligator farm. And um, that was a case where I didn't know where I was, but my parents did. I was allowed to wander which, uh, looking back, I find a, a curious and perhaps premeditated choice. Uh, you know, what better place to teach a wayward child the dangers of wandering off than at a, a place where they might get snapped at by a gnarly old one-eyed gator. Um, unfortunately for my parents, I never had a close encounter, so it didn't have the desired fact, effect on me. In fact, I know it didn't because 
Uh, if you just ask my wife, I still wander off without telling anybody. It drives her crazy. Uh, so when I, uh, I wandered willfully, uh, disobeying my parents most certainly. I'm sure I was instructed not to do so, but I did so anyway. So when I read um, some wandered in desert wastelands, at least I did, I, I immediately thought of the Israelites wandering the wilderness. So if this is correct, our interpretation of these verses would be that they're wandering because of willful disobedience, just like my case. But for a number of reasons we don't have time to get into, scholars don't believe the wanderers in verse 4 or 5 are wandering because they disobeyed, um, but it's just people in general who lost their way in their travels, which for the balance of human history was dangerous and arduous. I mean, we take for granted, yes, there are difficulties in travels today, but nothing compared to what it once was, especially in Arabia when you're traversing a trackless desert, and Hollywood has played this scene out hundreds of times of the lost soul out in the desert, dunes as far as the eye can see, no help in sight. Regardless of uh, whether we've uh, been lost in the sense that the, the travelers in verse 4 or 5 are lost, we at least on some level understand the panic and the fear that's felt when we've lost our way uh, to the point where it's difficult to think straight. Now, these verses are applicable to us all, even in light of the fact, as I said, that it's difficult to get lost in the way that travelers were once lost or found themselves lost. But they're symbolic of trials and tribulations under the province of God. Now, Pastor Joe has uh, said this numerous times, that godliness does not equal worldly pleasures and wealth and an easy life. And in fact, there's plenty of biblical examples of godly men and women who lived very difficult lives, at least for a time, through no fault of their own. Joseph, Daniel, Job... Paul, both in his sufferings for the gospel and the thorn in his flesh. All of us have or will experience difficulties, and if we consider just this body over the last year, the trials and difficulties that members of this body have gone through, there are many. Uh, loss, unexpected loss of loved ones, sickness, disease, failing health. The list, the list could go on and on. And these are... Uh, trials that make us feel as though we are wandering, lost, have a sense of hopelessness. Now, this is not at all to infer that life under God's providence is random or aimless, because nothing could be further from the truth. In James chapter 5, the sufferings of the prophets and the trials of Job were used as examples to the believers of God's providence in their sufferings. I'll pick up in Verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we counted blessed as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So our wanderings have a purpose, even if it might not uh, be seen in the immediate future. They're nonetheless part of God's plan. And in the words of John Piper, in all the setbacks of your life as a believer, God is plotting for your joy. We're going to consider the next two crises together, which, is, uh, which are found in verses 10 through 12 and then in 17 and 18. The prisoners and the fools and rebels. Um, and if you're taking note, this is life because of man's foolishness and rebellion. Let me back up just a minute. The wanderers were symbolic of life 
under the providence of God. So our second crisis uh, together is life because of man's foolishness and rebellion. Starting in verse 10, some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Now the circumstances of the second and third crises are much different than the first in that the blame for the trouble that man finds himself in falls squarely on the man himself as a result of their sinful ways, their foolishness. They did not subject themselves to God's truth and so they have to live with the fallout. And a case in point is King Nebuchadnezzar. According to uh, George Rawlinson in his historical illustrations of the Old Testament, Modern research has shown that Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest monarch that Babylon or perhaps the East generally ever produced. He must have possessed an enormous command of human labor, nine-tenths of Babylon itself, and nineteen-twentieths of all the other ruins that in almost countless profusion cover the land are composed of bricks stamped with his name. He appears to have built or restored almost every city and temple in the whole country, His inscriptions give an elaborate account of the immense works which he constructed in and about Babylon itself, abundantly illustrating the boast, is not this great Babylon which I have built. So King Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, uh, immense power and authority, but he was troubled by some dreams uh, in which he saw an enormous tree that was fruitful and reached up to the sky. But this tree was cut down and its stump chained with iron and bronze. So he was greatly troubled by this dream he had. So he went to Daniel and asked him, "Uh, can you tell me what this means? So I'll pick up in Daniel chapter 4, just read you a a few pieces of this as it it, uh, clearly illustrates um, Nebuchadnezzar's foolishness and how he despised the counsel of the Most High. Starting verse 22 of chapter 4, this is Daniel speaking. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze. Interesting, the same imagery that's used here, which was used in Psalm 107, it's the um, imagery of oppression. Uh, stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Now, just like Nebuchadnezzar, we all break the first commandment. In our pride, we reject God and his word. We seat ourselves on the throne of our lives. And if we are unrepentant, we will suffer by varying degrees the consequences of our pride and rebellion. It could be destroyed relationships, reputations ruined, trust lost, or worse, the imprisonment and affliction of our mind and bodies. So this is the state that the prisoners and fools found themselves in as a direct consequence of the rebellion, the rejection of God and his commands. So those are our crises. As I mentioned, God's response is of most importance in the psalm. So we'll take a moment to consider God's response to the various states that are described in this psalm. So in each circumstance, it follows, a, has a rhythm, okay? They got in trouble, they cried out. And as they appealed to him as their only hope of being delivered, God answered. Although I don't think the psalmist intended it this way, as uh, progressively, the people become less and less deserving of God's mercy. The wanderers, yes, they got lost. They cried out, God had mercy. But the prisoner and fool who directly rebelled against God and rejected his authority in their life, they cried out and he had mercy on them. God's response is the same regardless of the circumstance. The wanderer cried out, he led them to safety. The prisoner cried out, he freed them. The fool cried out and he healed them. And similarly, Nebuchadnezzar cried out and received mercy. I'll just uh, read a few verses In chapter 4, starting in 34, At that time I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So God's mercy is extended generously to all who would cry out to him, which is very unlike man who dispenses his mercy capriciously. So God dispenses his mercy even to those who by human standards are undeserving. So we give thanks to God for he's good. He withholds his Wrath, but not his mercy. His wrath, which is completely justified, and mercy so undeserved. Psalm 145, 8, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love, or hesed, as we talked about earlier. In contrast, are we not quick to pour out wrath, slow to dispense mercy? Just think of how many times I've been like the unmerciful servant. I gladly accept God's mercy, while at the same time, I'll deny it to my fellow man. So finally, our application. 
The application is our response to God's mercy and then finding Christ in the song. So the first application is pretty simple. Are you a wanderer? So are you in a stage of life where you are wandering? Difficulties, trials, and troubles cry out. If you're a prisoner or a fool, cry out and receive God's mercy. And to everyone who cries out to God, it's an act of grace that his ear is turned to their cries, that he hears them, and that he responds. The second application is based on verses 2, 8, 15, and 21. And I'll read them for you. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. In the New King James Version, this phrase is translated as, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. So it's pretty clear that when we're recipients of God's mercy, our first response should be to praise him, which is natural. If somebody um, extends mercy to you, we should have a thankful heart, but it's not just a private praise. God, I thank you for saving me from this or that. But a public uh, praise. It says, tell your story. Now in Chronicles 1, as the Israelites returned the ark of God, David instructed the worship in a similar way. So starting in chapter 16, verse 4, he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. That day, David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. And I'm skipping way down to verse 24. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So it's clear we need to tell our story not only concerning our temporal saving or deliverance, but our eternal deliverance. And I was particularly um, struck by the fact that the question is, do I consider... God's mercy is so sweet that I'm compelled to tell other people about it. Particularly his eternal mercy. You know, I, it's easy in one way for me to tell people when God delivers me from a certain circumstance, trial or difficulty, to praise him. But am I ready and overflowing with praise for the eternal mercy that he gave me through his son Jesus Christ? So finally, finding Christ in the psalm. Now, we've all been ransomed and delivered in the fullest sense through the substitutionary death of Jesus, without which we'd find ourselves in a truly hopeless state. So a couple questions. Were we not rebels drawing near the gates of death? Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Skipping down to verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Were we not slaves and prisoners enslaved to sin? Romans 7, verses 23 through 25. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. 
Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And finally, as God's people, do we not wander as strangers in a foreign land, our true home being heaven to which God will safely guide us by his mercy through his son Jesus Christ? Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love and mercy endures forever. Please join me as I close by praying the words of the Charles Wesley hymn, Depth of Mercy. Depth of mercy can there be, mercy still reserved for me. Can my God his wrath forbear, me the chief of sinners spare? I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. There for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know, I feel. Jesus weeps, but loves me still. Amen.